I've never been tempted to become a vegetarian, but I have great respect for those who have. My sister, who I think is a living saint, has been one for a number of years. Sometimes people do it for health, and when you can have that kind of self-discipline and self-control, I'm just saying kudos, man. I, I, I applaud that. Some people say it's a matter of morality. They don't want to eat anything that has a face. And again, I realize if you want to live by those principles, I, I respect that. But there's been one major reason I've never been able to become a vegetarian. Bacon. It makes everything taste better. Clam chowder, even a salad, you put it on a burger. It's just amazing. I had a friend in Texas that said to me as a pastor, Gary, why would God not want us to eat meat if he makes it taste so good? I said, dude, there are a couple logical fallacies there, but I understand the sentiment. I have another friend who's a comedian, and he has a friend who is a proselytizing vegetarian. And they were together at brunch, and he had a piece of bacon in his hand. And she said, Johnny, do you even know how that stuff is made? He goes, no, but if you ever meet the guy, tell him he knocked it out of the park. You know, this, this is amazing. He ought to keep doing exactly what he's doing. While we may have different views about vegetarianism, none of us should sentimentalize the animal world. It is beyond brutal. Whether or not we eat animals, they are going to eat each other. You think of something as delicate as a bird, how does it exist? It eats and kills worms. And then you let little Fluffy out of the house, your pet cat that you love and adore. And what does the cat do? The cat eats the birds. And then all around us in Colorado, we have coyotes. We have one that comes up into our backyard once or twice a week. They eat the cats. I had a picture of it eating a cat. It was too traumatic for a Sunday morning. So you can just fill it in with your imagination. But what goes around comes around because the coyote that eats the cat, that eats the bird, can sometimes get eaten by a bird. Now, these are the big birds, the golden eagles or a large bald eagle. But here's a picture of where a, a coyote was taking care of a deer carcass and then gets <laughs> picked up by a giant bald eagle. That's the animal world. Now, in Africa, lions are often called the apex. They're at the top of the food chain. But maybe that makes them a little cocky. They might even try to take on something like an elephant. But if they do, it's usually a baby elephant and they have to be careful because if they don't look around, they're gonna end up in a situation like this where the mama elephant says, you mess with my baby, I crush your chest. That's the way the animal world works. If we were to be honest, if you wanted to have a documentary that really pictured what the animal world is like, what you should call that series, I think you should call it, what's for dinner? It's what they do. For me to live, you must die. It's the world of animals. But is the world of people socially any different? Isn't the way of the world, the dog eat dog world socially sort of, for me to rise, you must fall? And it can start so young. You think of mean girls in junior high. For me to be popular, I must shame you and you and you and male bullies in high school to show that I'm strong and tough. I'm gonna make you look weak and pathetic. 
and colleagues at business. I want the promotion, not you, so I'm gonna slander you, I'm gonna undercut you, I'm gonna make you look incompetent so that I can get the job. Or a very successful business owner that might pay substandard wages and no health care so that they can buy a $100 million, $200 million, $300 million yacht. Isn't it the same principle? For me to rise, you must fall. I don't put myself above this. Although I don't think I would ever buy a ticket and go to an MMA, mixed martial arts contest, there is just something about it. When it comes on the television, it is so hard for me to turn it away. And it disgusts my wife. It's the one thing in my life that may make her question my faith. I was in a hotel one time, it was there and I paused. And Lisa's waiting for me to turn the channel and I don't. She goes, Gary, this is disgusting. Turn it off. I go, yeah, I know it really is, but oh, wow, yeah. But do you think the guy in the red is gonna beat the guy in the blue? Just get, I don't care, they're bleeding, just turn it off. Yeah, I, I know, I, I, I really should, I, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I can't find the remote. Gary, the remote's in your hand. Oh yeah, you're right, no, I, I really should turn it, but babe, yeah, what hand is the remote in? I mean, I can stall through an entire round to see the end of that bout. And so I asked myself, what is, I am a husband, father, even more. I am a grandfather and a pastor. What makes it so difficult for me to turn the channel when two guys are punching each other in the face? It's the dog eat dog world we live in. But Jesus came to bring a new world to us. A world where instead of animals eating each other, the lion lies down with the lamb. And in the human world, where men honor and respect women, and women honor and respect men, there's not always fighting the sexes. Where adults nurture and protect children. They don't exploit them, they don't use them, but then children turn around. They honor and respect adults where business owners will pay a fair wage and employees will give a fair day's worth of work. We give to each other, we lift each other up. Wouldn't you like to live in that world? Are you willing to help build a world like that? In our series on John, John wants to invite us to create that world with a very powerful tool and supernatural reality called love. We've been going through 1 John for a number of weeks, but before I quote from 1 John 4, where we're going today, I wanna back up and go to John's gospel. The same John who wrote 1 John wrote the gospel of John, and there's something curious about that that leads into what we're gonna say today about 1 John. If you were to add all four gospels together, you would find about 41 commandments given by Jesus. Now these commandments were important for the early church because Jesus called discipleship obeying those commands. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said we make disciples by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the early church needed to know what, what are these commands? If that's discipleship, I need to know what Jesus commanded us. 
But what's so curious about the Gospel of John? Okay, all four Gospels together, 41 commands. How many of those commands are found in the book of John? Anybody know? One. The only direct command of Jesus in the Gospel of John is chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why would John just have one when he knows it is so important? The discipleship is based on the commands of Jesus. I believe it's strategic. John wrote the last gospel. He knew the other three existed. They listed all the commands of Jesus and he's just as a matter of priority. And keep in mind, John was the one who was so close to Jesus. It's called the disciple that Jesus loved. He was always brought into the inner circle. He saw Jesus, he knew Jesus like perhaps nobody else on earth had ever known Jesus. And he was so mesmerized by the love of Jesus. It was so different. So fresh, he didn't want there to be any competition. He didn't want to say, I want to say these six things because really the other five don't matter as long as we get this one down that we are to be a people of love. So when he wrote his gospel that way, we wouldn't be surprised late in life, the last things he did in life was to write 1 John and he goes back to this command in chapter four, verses 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He uses such strong language in this chapter. In fact, he also says that if we don't love, we're not a person of faith, verse eight, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So where do we go from here? How do we, when John says this matters, this doesn't just matter, this is ball game. How do we, the kind of people who eat bacon and watch MMA, how do we become people who do this? who are marked by love. Well, John doesn't leave us to guess. He tells us right away, it is not by trying harder. It's not hearing a sermon saying, okay, I wanna do a little bit better. There is a spiritual transformation that has to take place. And it begins when we realize we love because he first loved us. We only become people of love when we first receive God's love. There's a study of three universities. I got together to examine the old wives' tale that people who have been married for 40 or 50 years start to look alike. People would laugh about that. They said, is it true? And they examined photographs on wedding days and then like the 40th or 50th wedding anniversary. And it, you know, it, it looks like it's true. It seems to happen. So there's a second thing. Well, why does it happen? And here's what they determined. When you live with somebody that long, you don't realize you're doing it. You mimic each other's expressions. You can kind of notice it with babies, but even adults, when you're with somebody that long, you mimic each other's expressions and your expressions are like facial bodybuilding. 
Just like a bodybuilder can craft a certain physique by lifting certain weights, when you make certain expressions, it shapes your face. So after a while, if you've been with someone for decades, you do start to look alike. John says the same thing is true spiritually. This is so exciting. If you behold God in his love, the loveliness of God, the glory of God, you read his word and hear his heart of love and you're shaped by spending time around God, looking into his face, contemplating who he is, it turns us into people who reflect God. And since God is love, we become people of love. Which means that more than love is a virtue, it's an extension of a relationship, an expression of a relationship. The, the first century philosophers, they'd get it wrong. Love is a virtue, you choose to do that. John would say, no, not really. Not the way that God defines love. It's an expression of a relationship. Why in Galatians 5.22, it's called a fruit of the spirit. We have to first invite the God of love into our hearts. And he gives us his own spirit and his spirit compels us to love. You can be a nice person without knowing God's love. You cannot love the way Jesus calls us to love if you don't first know God's love. Well, if everything goes back to knowing God's love, how do we receive God's love? It's so key, it's ball game. Well, the first thing is this, we have to remind ourselves of what he has already done for us. First John 4, 9 through 11, John says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. His one and only son. He didn't spare him, but he sent him to the world that we might, read these three words with me, live through him. John's gonna go back to this over and over again. It's not trying harder, it's living through him. That when Jesus came and died and then sent his Holy Spirit, this might sound too supernatural for some online if it seems bizarre, I'm sorry, but Christianity is a supernatural religion. Something changes. God's presence makes an impact. We become a different kind of people. That's why love is an expression of a relationship more than it's a virtue, on my own, I can't love someone who hates me. I don't have it within me. No matter how hard I try or fast, that won't happen. But here's what I can do. I can spend time looking at the loveliness of God who loves me knowing that I have acted in hateful ways and out of the reflection begin to love others. In other words, we are not the lamp. So often you hear a sermon like this, you think, I gotta try hard, I've gotta do this. And John would say, well, good luck, it's not gonna work because you're not the lamp. You're the light bulb. If you wanna learn to love, the first thing you have to do before you even try to love is you get plugged into the love of God. Thank you, tech team, for making that work. We're really blown the illustration if that wasn't plugged in. So I appreciate that. But then God's love and light is shining through us. We don't make it happen. We do it by looking at God. And that's where John goes on to say this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, for my sins, for your sins. Let's make this personal to become people of love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. So it's only when I look at the cross and see how Jesus has forgiven me, even though, let's be honest, I have participated in the dog-eat-dog world. You know you have to. While we're disgusted by it, we've all done it, we've all made the world a worse place at various times, and God still treats us with mercy and forgives us, and loving others is based on understanding and reminding ourselves of that forgiveness. Otherwise, we feel entitled and resentful instead of loving. It comes down to this. Until I remember every day that God has rescued me, I live with a sense of entitlement, so I'm going to resent people instead of love people. Let me explain what I mean. I think one of the greatest novelists of all time, and I think most English literature people would say this, is Fyodor Dostoevsky. His novels are have shaped the way we look at literature. Uh, Crime and Punishment was a huge one. Brothers Karamazov, one I particularly related to. It's called The Idiot. Um, Going through all that, just his psychology and his faith, putting those together, his understanding. They're major works. If you want to be well read, you probably have to have read Crime and Punishment at least. What a lot of people don't realize is that those three novels were almost never written. Because when Dostoevsky was a rather young writer in 1849, just still doing mainly short stories, he was part of a writer's group in Tsarist Russia that would occasionally critique the government. Well, the Tsar had had enough, and he had them arrested, charged with treason for anti-government activities, and back then, the sentence was death by a firing squad. And so Dostoevsky was led with his friends in front of a place to have execution. And Dostoevsky watched many of his friends and fellow countrymen shot down in front of them. He's waiting to go next. He can smell the gunpowder. He saw his friends fall. And then as their bodies are carried out, he's led to the line right over blood that had pulled from his fellow countrymen. And this is it. I've done a few short stories, but my life is over. And then just before the soldiers raised their rifles, a reprieve came. They don't know from who. Where he was told not to be, the commander was told, don't shoot him. He's been sentenced to four years in a Siberian labor camp. Now, four years in a Siberian work camp is not a picnic. But Dostoevsky didn't compare it to, you know, living a nice life. He compared it to being dead. I'm not dead. It's better than being buried. I shouldn't have been able to live. And he always lived with this sense that I have been rescued. Every day is a gift. I was this close to being wiped out. I never would have been able to create Sonia in Crime and Punishment or the Brothers Karamazov. I never would have been able to experience this or to do that. And this sense of living as a man who had been rescued changed his life. He wasn't bitter about the labor camp. He was grateful for Siberia because it allowed him to be alive. John would say that's what it is for a Christian spiritually. We realize what we deserve, hell, and we don't have it. God has been merciful to us. And as people who are rescued, 
we live with an entirely different attitude. You see, an entitled Christian is, God, how come you don't answer all of my prayers right now? Christian, who understands she's been rescued, has a different question. God, how come I'm not in hell? You're so kind to me. You rescued me. How do I live in response? Why does that matter? You can't receive God's love if you're angry at God. You can't. I'm just telling you as a pastor, 90% of the time, I'm not saying 100, but 90% of the time, when I find Christians who are angry at God, they have this sense of entitlement instead of being rescued. To become a person of love, we have to recognize what God has already done for us. And it begins with he rescued us by Christ's death on the cross. But then we need to take the next step. And this is a wonderful step. We have to cultivate, study, and meditate. This is intentional. On God's favor toward us by letting him kiss us with his word. Now I use this phrase, kiss us with his word, to say Bible study isn't an obligation. It's not a duty. For me, it is a very intimate act with my heavenly father where he expresses his heart. He shows his love. It is a miracle of affirmation and encouragement and support that I'm going to live in a dog-eat-dog world that will hate me, that will attack me, and I can open up the Bible and enter a world where God affirms me and loves me and promises to watch over me. Psalm 17, 7, David says, show me the wonders of your great love. David, I've seen glimpses of you. It's gonna take divine revelation for me to really understand how wondrous and how great your love for me really is. F.B. Meyer once wrote that, that God's love can only be pictured as the entire Amazon River going to irrigate and water one daisy. More than we could ever need. And if we will live in God's world and receive the wonders of his great love, we're then set free to love others. And it's God's word that helps us understand this world and God's heart toward us. Actually, like this, here's how it happens. Do you feel threatened because people are attacking you? Isaiah 54, 17, God will kiss you with these words. No weapon forged against you will prevail. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, your heritage. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Are you worried about finances? You have an uber wealthy patron who promises to richly provide you with everything, not just for your needs, for your enjoyment. Look it up in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Do you feel alone? You have an always awake God who cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7, who will hear every prayer you utter. 1 Peter 3, 12, Job 22 through 27. Do you feel ignored and disrespected? You're not getting what you think you deserve. Where are you gonna look? 1 Samuel 2, 30 says, we should look to him that when we live to honor God, this blows me away. He is eager to honor us. You can keep drilling down, why don't you appreciate me? Why don't you praise me? Why don't you thank me? Why don't you value me? And God is saying, hey, forget them. They're thinking of themselves. 
Focus on honoring me and I, the God of the universe. I will honor you. I talk to a lot of young people, and they might even tell me, everyone I love ends up leaving me. Hebrews 13.5, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. These are the kisses of God to his people living in a dog-eat-dog world. And there are many more we don't have time to read. Will you receive these? Psalm 17, 17, show me the wonders of your great love. It should be a prayer of every Christian. If I want to love others, the first thing I have to do is receive God's love. I need him to show me the wonders of his great love. Because if I don't dwell in the wonders of his great love, I try to meet the, the lack by the little bit of his love and her love and that person's love and that person's respect. And in a doggy dog world, it just doesn't work. I'm more likely to be bitten than loved. I've seen this throughout my life. The more I receive the wonders of God's great love, it's just the more love I have to pour out to others. If I get lazy receiving God's great love, listening to his words of love, ignoring scripture, I want this person and that person and that person to make up the lack, and it just won't work. Particularly if you're in difficult situations, you're a blended family, you're pouring yourself out for the kids and there's suspicion and maybe even resentment. The parents who make it realize we don't love to be loved because we may not be by those we love. We love because he first loved us. I spent most of the time on receiving God's love because that's really where everything goes. But we have to at least address, well, then how do we show that love if it's the one command that matters so much? Well, what does it mean to love? This is where our world gets it so wrong. It is not a feeling. It is a policy to be pro-human. I love the way F.F. Bruce puts it. It is a consuming passion for the well-being of others, receiving God's love. I have a consuming passion for the well-being of others. So the first thing I have to do, the apostle Paul would tell me, I've got to take off that doggy dog animal nature that is a part of all of us. In Colossians 3, 8, Paul says this, now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice is ill will towards someone, slander, tearing somebody down, socially trying to assassinate them, and filthy language. Paul says, that's the animal world. We've been liberated from that. We don't have to go back there. Instead, there is a new world, Colossians 3, 12 and 14, where as God's chosen ones, holy and loved, always comes back to that. Then we clothe ourselves with compassion. And I love this because what does compassion mean? Compassion means I listen to the story behind the action. There's a foster father who was just so horrified at how these kids that he cared for and took into his home, how they've been treated and hurt. He said he got angry and even bitter toward the parents. How can you do that to a kid? How could you ignore a kid like that until he met the parents and he heard their stories? He said, they're foster kids grown up. And while you might hate what someone does, 
If you have a consuming passion for the well-being of others, you slow down to hear the story and you realize you can love even them. Kindness is doing good things to people who aren't always good. Humility, I don't want to use you so that I can prosper. I don't want to tear you. I want to lift you up and bless you. Meekness is also gentleness. I'm not going to be harsh. I'm going to be patient. I know you don't bat a thousand. And then this is all comes under the rubric of love. Verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love. This is, this is the perfect summary. Which ties everything together in unity. Paul says, really, love is the overall title for all of these qualities. And I love that because trying to understand love is, it's, it's a theory. What does it mean? Is it a feeling? And Paul breaks it down that love is compassion. It's kindness. It's humility. It's gentleness. It's patience. Did anybody watch the Wimbledon men's final last Sunday? You have to get up early. Many called it the best final in years, if not decades. But if you're gonna make it to center court on the last day of the tournament, you've gotta have a lot of different strokes. On grass, you gotta have a good serve, but then you gotta be able to return. And then when you go to the baseline, you better have a good forehand and your backhand better hold up. If you get to the net, you gotta be able to volley. You need the overhand. And if you get pinned back, you better figure out how to make a lob. Because if you lack any one of those strokes, an expert tennis player will annihilate you and they'll focus on that. Well, Paul tells us what the strokes of love are. We don't have to guess. We need to develop compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are the components of love. And that's what we're to live. And then he summarizes it in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. I, I really don't have a memory of life apart from God. He got hold of me really young. And there's part of me when I was young thinking, man, if I really want to be a faithful, sold-out believer, I got to be a monk and just focus on God. It'll just mean me and God and long times of prayer and study Problem is I started getting infatuated with girls in kindergarten. As the least likely candidate for celibacy in the history of the church. This isn't gonna work. But I was mistaken when I thought that would be the highest point of love. Because John tells me, no Gary, you most experience God and see God when you love others and you're loved in return. That's how God, the invisible God, makes himself known. And so it's like the elevator of love, and it works. Hatred is tearing everybody down. Tear this down, tear that down. Destroy this, destroy that. We see it every night on the news. All the forms of hatred that are destructive and tear things down. And, and John says, here's a new world. It's an elevator of love where you first, you receive God's love. God, show me the wonders of your great love. And when you see that, wow, you want to love others. And when you start to love others, it shows you God's love more, more of his wonders, which compels you to love more. And it lifts us up and up until we become people who excel at love. In the late 19th century, Max Beerbaum wrote a 
famous short story called The Happy Hypocrite. It told the story of Lord George Hell, who lived down to his name. Wealthy, but he was vicious. He gambled with weighted dice, loose with drinking and with women and cheated people. He had a lot of lovers and he was at dinner with one when he saw a woman almost penniless, but the purity and beauty struck him and he finally ended up proposing to her. And he was wealthy. He could have provided everything she lacked. She was embarrassed by her job, but she said, sir, I cannot marry you. I've made a pledge. I will only marry a man who has the face of a saint. And sir, you are no saint. I see how you live by the way your face looks. So he went to the best mask maker in London. Back then they didn't have plastic surgery, but they actually could make wax masks. He said, I need the face of a saint. And the wax maker had worked for a guy he thought was one. He said, well, how long do you need it for? He goes, I need it for the rest of my life. Well, this is gonna take some time. But he fashioned one. And George put it on and he went to the woman. She didn't recognize him as a man she'd seen before. He wooed her, finally proposed. They got married. He signed his marriage certificate, Lord George Heaven, instead of hell. And he started to live that way in response to her love. He gave back the earnings of everybody he had cheated, and even more, gave away most of his fortune to those who were needy. He began doing kind goods. He lived the life of a saint. He'd have nightmares that somehow he would be exposed, and this woman that he loved so much would finally see who he was, but he managed to keep it hidden until one terrible day. A former lover who had many reasons to be angry at him saw him from behind. Lord George, hell, turn around. And he said, ma'am, you're mistaken. And then his wife said, you are truly mistaken. This is Lord George heaven. You cannot fool me. And she reached at him like a panther and she rips off the mask. And George is horrified. His wife will see who he really is. And he says to her, I understand if you now want to leave. She said, George, why would I leave? It's the most beautiful face I've ever seen. What I don't understand is why you would craft a mask that looks exactly like your face. Lord George grew into his face. He acted out of love and it created in him the face of a man who loves. And that's what we're invited to do. That is the elevator of love like two married couples looking at each other, it transforms us to create this beautiful world that scripture talks about of the lion lying down with the lamb. We have the dog-eat-dog world. And here you have this incredible picture. Now, it's only the strong that has to be loving. I mean, this lamb isn't strong. You might say this lamb is stupid. <laughs> what is he doing lying next down to a lion? But hatred is spiritual weakness. Anybody can hate. Love is spiritual strength. It takes strength to be compassionate. It takes strength to be kind. There's nothing this lamb can do to hurt the lion, but the lion will lie down with the lamb. That's the world God wants us to create. It's the world we can choose to build. When we first receive God's love, show me the wonders 
of your great love. And then he makes us eager, committed to live a life pushing forward the well-being of others. There is no better life to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you have loved us. I know there are people here with really deep hurts. They have lived in what feels like an animal's world. And they came here defining themselves by that. I pray through a miracle of your spirit and grace, they could begin praying, show me the wonders of your great love and Lord that you would respond by letting them know how much they are loved. Lift us, Lord, from the dog-eat-dog world to the world where the lion lies down with the lamb. We pray in Jesus' name.